Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria. Good morning, everybody. I've uh, just met with Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, where I agreed an extension to the Brexit process to the end of October at the latest. My name's Ian Wiley, and the focus of this podcast episode is not Brexit, but the reporting of Brexit. As the Brexit crisis and uncertainty drags on, the media remain critical to the process, obliged either legally or ethically to report accurately and impartially. Reuters routinely publishes 300 news alerts a day on Brexit. Brexit has helped make BBC Parliament more popular than MTV. But there's a danger that too often the journalism gets bogged down in the politics, trapped in an endless loop while the issues that actually matter, those that led to Brexit in the first place, get pushed off the pages and bulletins. Unlike politicians caught up in internal party conflict or ideological dogma, journalists have the power to bring more light than heat on fast-changing events and issues. But needless to say, none of this is easy or straightforward. For the next hour, we'll hear a discussion between journalists and academics as they share their views and experiences of the reporting of Brexit. Lisa O'Carroll is Brexit correspondent for The Guardian. Lewis Goodall is political correspondent for Sky News and author of Left for Dead, The Strange Death and Rebirth of the Labour Party. Fergus Hewison is political reporter for BBC Northeast. And Dr Darren Kelsey is a Newcastle University lecturer and author of Media and Effective Mythologies. I begin the conversation by asking the panel if Brexit has been good for the business of journalism. Lewis Goodall kicks off the discussion. Yes. I mean, one very clear sense in that, you know, I'm sure that you will all appreciate this as well. You know, I've spent much of, um, you know, from a very sad teenager being obsessed in politics, politics uh, you know, occasionally feeling that it's a bit of a minority pursuit, right? And I was sort of, uh, I sometimes sort of wonder, being sort of 29, not nearly 30, uh, what it must have been like doing my job in like 2001, you know, what? What did people cover? You know, they were sort of like, you know, will we join the Euro? Answer, no. Uh, you know, uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair having a fight, well, so what? Um, you know, now, I don't think it's just a London thing. I can't travel around the country and you're sitting in a cafe, you're in a car, whatever, you know, taxi, whatever. People just want to talk about politics. They want to talk about Brexit. It happened just on the way here, just now. Not just when they find out what you do. First question is always, what's going to happen? Answer, don't know. Uh, but... <laughs> But, but, you know, just generally, you hear it. I mean, I've literally been in pubs and people said, well, thing is, you know, political declaration, I mean, you, she can change that with a withdrawal agreement, that's set in stone. I mean, you know, it is absolutely extraordinary. On it, so, in one sense, that is clearly great. Um, and it's great for us. In another sense, clearly, the cost of that has been, you know, you alluded to it, that so, there is literally no bandwidth for <coughs> anything else. Mm. Nothing. Uh, and uh, you know, as much as you want to, and I'm someone in terms of how I cover politics, uh, very much likely <coughs> out of Westminster. There's not even bandwidth really to cover that much Brexit outside Westminster, particularly over the last three or four months, because the story has, whether we like it or not, been so resolutely confined in SW1 and the sort of tribulations and the day-to-day changes. So, uh, in one sense, yes, but the cost has been also uh, both for the public and for us a really sort of odd existential angst, right? You know, politics is so existential now, the questions are so existential. And I'm not sure, you know, 
in terms of whether it's been good for business, uh, whether it's been worth that, really. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll come on to some of those costs and unintended consequences a little bit later on. Um, Fergus, uh, what, I mean, you've been working the political beat here for a number of years. Yeah, yeah, for does, 12 years. Does yeah, Brexit compare with anything we've seen before? I think the only thing in my career that I can compare it to in any way would be the Iraq war and the kind of polarisation of opinion about, around that, uh, which I was actually in London when that happened, so I was covering it from there and rather than <coughs> here. But I mean, it has been extraordinarily good for business, as, as Lewis said, in the sense that suddenly, you know, political anoraks like me, who we were the kind of nerds who sat in the corner and everybody came to when they didn't know what to do about local elections or general elections, suddenly, you know, the story we're doing is at the front and centre of almost everything and almost everything in terms of, you know, what's happening in Westminster and the drama in Westminster, but also how that's going to play out in this region uh, for good or bad. Obviously, we've got Nissan here, what happens with that, all of these sorts of things. So it's become extraordinarily interesting uh, in that way. So it, it's very good for business in the sense that people are, as you said, you know, you, once upon a time you went out to do a box or whatever else it might be, and you ask somebody about something to do with politics and they'd give you a kind of blank look and you'd have to ask 50 people and you'd get, you know, five good responses and you'd go back to the office now, it's sort of shooting fish in the barrel. Everybody has an opinion about Brexit. Uh, so in that sense, in terms of engagement with politics uh, and engagement with what we're doing, it's great uh, for the BBC and great for political journalists and journalism, I think. But obviously, what, what's happened with, with Brexit is it's polarised opinion, and it's polarised opinion about the media. So it's polarised opinion about uh, the newspapers, it's polarised opinion about the BBC, about Sky, about The Guardian. So it, it's, it's done that, and so the, the way journalism is viewed and, will be viewed, I think, will be, is very much affected by Brexit as well. Okay. Lisa, can I come to you? Um, the Guardian, like many other newspapers, maybe all newspapers, have been under the cosh from competitive pressures for, you know, for a number of years. So, in a way, has Brexit come at a good time? I mean, could it be argued that a story of that, you know, that magnitude been actually good for the newspaper business and, and news organisations in general? Uh, the answer is undoubtedly yes. And I'm not being rude here with my laptop, distracted watching what's going on at Westminster. I'm just going to show you some data we have. Um, I'm much older than Lewis. Um, I can tell you what we were covering in 2001 and 2003 was the Iraq War. It just reminded me, I was running the Media Guardian website. We launched it. I launched it. Um, and it went from nothing in September 2000 to one million users in March 2003 when that march against the Iraq war happened. Um, and now, today, uh, so we're almost 20 years on, this is the live blog, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the live blog in The Guardian, but that's the, the numbers that are looking at that right now, it's 847,000. That is low. So the interest in politics, there's a bit of, obviously a bit of Brexit fatigue going on at the moment, but at the height around the, um, I think it was the first vote in January, this went up, this blog had three, four million people looking at it. Um, and uh, so the, if Brexit came at a time, I think, um, but just before Brexit, Trump um, had been, uh, you know, hoped into view and became a very controversial um, figure in the United States. And at that time, newspapers, I, I mean, I'm old enough to know that to have had to um, look at my own career and go, is there any money? Is journalism dying? Can I stay in newspapers? Do I need to find a, a new career? I actually went back to Ireland and got, tried to get out of newspapers. 
got, got drawn and, and decided my career was in online and that's where the future was. But got drawn back into it and then the combination of Trump and Brexit has been an absolute boom to newspapers who are still in very financially precarious positions. But back, you know, four or five years ago, we were at a time when uh, the circulation was dropping. I just had a quick look at the garden circulation was about 140,000 now. And I, in, you know, 20 years ago, it might have been 400,000. And the garden would be a small circulation newspaper. So the, the mail would, and the sun would be over 3 million each. Um, so it, there were not only, it was like a double whammy of falling circulation, but an absolute um, demise of advertising. It was Facebook and Google was not only eating your breakfast, it was eating your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and uh, then along comes this, and just you know, the, um, the interest and engagement among readers is, has meant that they're not just uh, advertising isn't just being sold as um, something that can be um, bought across many, many websites. People would buy, you know, I've gone back to the conventional sense where they're buying advertising in relation to, to brands, the Guardian, the Reader is quite unique type of person, the Sky person, the BBC person, where their advertising would be, you know, would be a target audience as opposed to Nike coming in and buying one million page views across 500 different sites just to get the numbers. So, yeah, yeah. it has been transformed. Okay, thank you. Darren, as an academic, um, slightly <coughs> different viewpoint, but I mean, I know you're not the only academic in here with a, a research interest in Brexit, so, you know, it, has, has it been good for, for academia? Uh, the costs for academia are yet to be known, depending on the outcome. So in a literal sense, it's quite a nerve-wracking time, I think. But in terms of analysing politics, discourse, journalism, it's obviously there's lots to talk about. Um, the, I think, drawing on the example a minute ago of the Iraq war, I look back to that time and think... That was, when I was thinking earlier on, that was the last time when there was a really sort of sense of polarised opinion in the country. But there was a conversation that <coughs> went further than just this cutting off mid-sentence, shutting it down. If the BBC are telling a story that gives both sides an opinion and they're just part of the conspiracy to stop Brexit, it's, there's something very different going on now to what I feel like there was with the Iraq War, where there was a conversation. Um, and th those kind of or at least a healthy conversation. And I just think the current position we're in with Brexit um, could prove to be very costly for many, many, many years in a different way to anything we've seen before. Um, from a purely academic perspective, I think it demonstrates the importance of what we do. I think it not only does it demonstrate the importance of, of good journalism and, and a strong media democracy but also the importance of analysing politi uh, politics media mm. um, critical analysis of storytelling representation, these kinds of things um, never before have we seen like why this stuff's so important yeah. so in that sense I think it's a real wake up call So thank you Darren so let's um, get on to the skin we, we, we've already talked about this unique uh, reporting challenge, uh, but let's try and understand why it's it's unique and what makes it unique. And maybe maybe Lisa and Lewis, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what 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 it's like at Westminster when when you're there and you're reporting Westminster and 
um, just gives a little bit of an insight into what the mood is there and, and, and how that has changed perhaps to what, what it would have been like pre-Brexit. I mean, can you give us an insight into you know, what, how, how, the, how the lobby you know, has changed even over the last two or three years and, and reporting practices at Westminster? You go first, Goose, because I don't work in Westminster. <laughs> okay, well, so um, in terms of the general mood, and I'm not just talking about journalists here, I'm talking about MPs, it's dire. I mean, it's really, really dire. Um, and it's got noticeably worse even in the last month. That's partly because, certainly until yesterday anyway, we just seem to be stuck on a cycle of endless, endless repetition, where every side is kept in and has been kept in stasis, none of them strong enough to overpower the other, but none of them uh, strong enough able to really break out, May just repeating the same things over and over again, MPs being made to vote on the same things again and again and again, just on a personal level, you can't move in Westminster without MPs turning to you and saying, my marriage is falling apart, I can never live, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, we shouldn't feel sorry for MPs specifically, but this, this does affect the sort of mood of everything that's going on. You know, I can't get out of Westminster, I'm constantly here, I'm being constantly threatened, my staff are being uh, threatened with violence, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Um, and then on a reporting level, um, I think that uh, for journalists as well, it has been very, very difficult, again, because for precisely the same reasons, of the endless repetition of having to tell the public, no, this is the moment, this is the moment, this is the crunch moment, this is where everything's going to change, and it never ever does. And trying to sustain that, to try and sustain not only your own interest, but trying to sustain your audience's interest as well, and actually maintaining your credibility with your audience is difficult as well, because if you keep saying to them, no, this is the moment when it's going to change, bearing in mind that for the previous two years, we've been telling them that everything had actually been pretty in a real sort of odd stasis, where you know, Theresa May would go to Brussels, she wouldn't get what she wants, she would come back, her backbenchers would attack her, she'd go back, and so on and so on and so forth. Um, and I think just more broadly in terms of the lobby, and I have to be slightly careful what I say here, but I think that um, I'm not sure that lobby journalism necessarily has been, has been uh, especially well equipped to explore and deal with some of the challenges that we've been facing here. And I think occasionally, the lobby, as, as I mean, you know, the lobby has many, um, the lobby system uh, has many attributes to it. I think one of the less good things about it is it can be susceptible to a sort of groupthink, um, and we've seen that quite a, quite often in this process. Best example I can think of um, is this idea of the fabled Labour MPs, right? You know, from the very start, the Labour MPs, the schools of Labour MPs. You know, the Caroline Flints were going to come in and save Theresa May and going to rescue her deal. And time and time again, they have and the last meaningful vote, the semi-meaningful vote, only five voted for a deal. And that was partly because that's what Downing Street is doing, and that's what they were telling the lobby, and that's what the lobby were saying as a result. And actually, if you, anyone spent much time talking to Labour MPs, then you would know that that was never going to happen. That was never going to happen until Theresa May made clear what the next stage of Brexit was going to be. And I think... As a result, this entire process has been coloured by that sort of assumption that actually really was never going to take place. And I think that's been a bit of a problem throughout this process, actually, this sort of group thing. So, so Lisa, you, you've made the point that you're not in the lobby. Uh, and was, so was that a, a you're, you're a Brexit correspondent, but you're deliberately outside of Westminster and reporting on Brexit elsewhere. 
was that a deliberate um, uh, decision made by the Guardian right at the outset? Um, does that differ from how other news organisations have been trying to report Brexit? Well, I think in the beginning, I mean, I just took it upon myself to report. I was um, so fired up about the result, not being from this country, thinking this would affect me. I had a personal interest. I was angry about how um, EU citizens might be just jettisoned. Um, and I could see the issues in Ireland. So there's plenty to write about that wasn't really, um, it wasn't really um, even being discussed in the House of Commons. I can remember one of the first things I went down to was the, I mean, you, you don't have to be in the lobby to get into Westminster, by the way, um, but you do have to have a lobby path to get into where Lewis and the various newspapers all have an office in lovely oak panelled rooms or timber panelled rooms. We don't have one. Yeah, yeah, you don't have one. Them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have access that I don't have, but I, I've, I have access like a member of the public have, and I can remember going down to the House of Lords, maybe it was July 2016, so just a month after the referendum, and they were discussing acquired rights um, for EU citizens and nobody knew what they were um, and they had two academics and one was um, a professor from Queen Mary University which you, and she was explaining that there are all the acquired rights that EU citizens have so everything you took um, for granted um, your right to live, to work, um, to get benefits, to access the NHS, to schools, to everything um, came from the EU and the only acquired rights I remember so well were the right to own property and the right to run a business and speaking to Helena Kennedy out in the corridor and all these, you know, peers and everybody's just scratching their heads and it went on like that for quite some time. Um, in May 2017, I was covering um, the Irish border, having a personal interest and a, a kind of, you know, knowledge by osmosis of the border, not from anywhere near the border, but um, I went over to um, a visit that Barnier did. I mean, the Irish were straight out of the traps um, Guarding their position, uh, Barney went to an area on the border in May 2017. Uh, Theresa May called, had called an election. She hadn't made a single visit to the border. I mean, there's just so many striking things that happened outside the lobby. And to me, it was an advantage to be outside the lobby. And one clear example I can give of, of um, you know, how the lobby operate. Not so much now, but maybe early on. That, you know, there's a kind of sense that everything was handed out by number ten, and that. The, the traditions were that you you faithfully report what the prime minister, who is you know the highest public official in the land, what she, what she or he says. Um, so, for instance, on the issue of EU citizens, um, the EU in May that year, May 2017, offered to roll over everything, roll over everything. Um, a draft um, note went out to all the member states. It was available publicly. Um, it uh, came back with some amendments on the back of some Brits in Europe. Um, about some of the rights that have been missing from it, including freedom of movement. Um, and Theresa May came out, I think it was June the 26th, didn't reply to the EU at all. I came out with what was she called a fair and generous offer um, to EU citizens. And I was so angry. Everybody in Fleet Street followed that faithfully. And it wasn't a, 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 a generous offer. It was a diminution of rights. It was, it was fake news. Um, but it, it was a product of that, the lobby system, that this big train or caravan of journalists goes with the Prime Minister anywhere. I think that's that's kind of not so much the case anymore. Um, no, I think it is, it is really, it's quite similar to... But an, it, there's an element, there's just an element of reporting. You have to report what number 10 says, but there are plenty of lone wolves down in, yeah. in the lobby. And, and also another thing that, the, it, that 
um, affects the reporting of what goes on in Westminster is um, online, for instance, the Guardian journalists file constantly, whereas some of the newspapers don't file constantly because they don't update online so often. So they, and the Sunday newspaper certainly, so you get a kind of different type of journalism on Sunday, like Tim Chipman, who just won Political Reporter of the Year in Newspaper Awards last year, has just had a fantastic year um, because he's the ear of so many cabinet members. Um, and Sky News is just really amazing, um, as is the BBC. So, so how closely do you work with your lobby colleagues, and and do do you see a, a difference in the way that you do your job? I mean, do you see? I mean, how, how does that how does that well, relationship very, work? Um, very early on, we set up a system where we have a news list. So every newspaper will have a, have a, the news editor will have a news list, but me, the lobby team, um, and the Brussels team, and occasionally some of the correspondents around Europe. We have a Brexit list, we have a Brexit group email, so we email each other every night, we each take it in turn every week, I'm doing it this week, so I've got to find out what's going on in Westminster, and I'm right, right across to Europe and in Dublin, um, and then that goes to the foreign desk, the news desk, and the business desk, and the deputy editor, and we all know uh, what we're doing, and then, might be, you know, that, that list might last for an hour. Um, and something else happens. I mean, it's it's just so unpredictable. But at least we have some sort of structure on what the day is going to be like um, from you know from yeah. seven o'clock in the morning. I think one interesting thing about the, the well, I mean, I've been down to Westminster a couple of times during this sort of recent process in the last few months, and then uh, you know talk to MPs all the time, and then remembering what it was like, you know, going back to things like Iraq. Is, when you go and talk to MPs and you talk to MPs, they don't know what's going on. And once upon a time, you could go, what's going on in your party? What is the thinking? And a lot of them say, well, I don't really know. Because Theresa May is kind of in this, you know, has her own view and is sort of, you know, keeps things to herself, keeps things in the dark. And Jeremy Corbyn's, uh, you know, doing something similar in a way. There's a team around him. Well, either Corbyn or May, May, either Corbyn, yeah. the interesting thing about Corbyn and May is how similar they are in lots of ways. Yeah. They're both sort of outsiders within their own party, and so they don't have big factions yeah. in their party, Corbyn's slightly more now, but you know, they don't have a coterie so, that you yeah. can go to, well, what's this? Once you know, upon a time, you could go, you could phone up an MP yeah. and they'd be close to, and they'd say, this is what they're thinking, but yeah. this is what the party's thinking is on this, and now that's often really difficult to get, and MPs go, I don't know what my own party's thinking on this huge issue. But, well, they say, I don't actually know what they're thinking anymore, because... I'm kind of outside of the circle, and it's moving so quickly, and it's updating, and they tell you something, and the next half an hour later, it's out of date. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, Tory MPs, I mean, Tory MPs were astonished by May yesterday. Like, they had no clue. I mean, I was, I was standing outside, the, the, the ELRG had a sort of impromptu meeting in one of the committee corridors, and they were just flabbergasted. You know, they didn't see it coming. Now, you can make a sort of wider point about, you know, how on earth did the ELRG not see the fact that, you know, their truculence was going to lead to a softer Brexit or potentially no Brexit at all. That was eminently predictable. It's predictable from the first meaningful vote. But they were nonetheless astonished that she had finally decided to change. They had no conception, no clue that it was coming. And neither, by the way, did anyone in the cabinet going into that cabinet meeting either. You know, she is an incredibly secretive um, person. And, you know, they say the only person, and that even goes to some of her staff as well, you know, the only person they say that really knows what she's thinking is Philip May, who doesn't want to talk uh, for obvious reasons. So it's a new, uh, we can all agree it's a unique challenge. Um, but Fergus, and it's something that Lewis has alluded to already, how do we then go about reporting this, this uh, crisis, this saga, and keep our audience, whether it's newspaper uh, readers or radio listeners or TV viewers, how do we keep them, first of all, engaged, 
um, and, and interested. And then how do we do that thing where we inform them and give them some proper factual analysis that is some in some ways helpful without you know when you know, without sort of erring into mm. opinion and, and, and so on. Well, I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult because it, you know, it is every single day, and sometimes it is almost the same story every single day. In a sense that you know things change, but the the big bits of it stay the same. So the big bits of the story stay the same. We don't have a deal, and we're still negotiating all of those things, and so we're constantly saying this is the moment, and and then it isn't. So it is extraordinarily difficult in that way to keep keep them a kind of momentum going and thinking of new ways of not saying the same thing all the time, and every time. For instance, you know, I work on Sunday Politics, uh, which is a weekly program in the region. And one of the great problems is you, you, you know, you get a number of MPs in a room, and you, you, whatever you do about Brexit, whatever angle you take on Brexit, you end up, if you're not very careful, going back to the, the same debate about your remain versus leave. And we have to say you can end up having the very same argument over and over again. So, I mean, what we're trying to do, I and mean, whether we do it was successfully, is to you know focus in on particular issues, particular things, uh, so citizenship rights, for instance, these sorts of things, and, try, and you have to keep trying to steer it uh, towards those those things if you're having a discussion about it, rather than getting into the general kind of discussion which we've had, you know, ad infinitum about should we stay, should we leave, and all of these sorts of things, so inevitably that's that's where you can end up. Yes. Uh, so it is it is extraordinarily challenging, and, it, and you know, it... it very often, you know, it changes so quickly, but essentially, the, the thing that stay the same, we're stuck in this in the same status essentially as we were before, and often aren't very f- much further forward. And so, we're telling the audience, uh, big things happen, but nothing has changed. So that is always a, a kind of a real challenge. But I think it's fo- trying to focus, or what we've done often is trying to focus on on individual issues within the Brexit story, uh, whatever that might be, fishing, uh, agriculture these sorts of things and trying to focus on those as well because that can get very much lost among the big yeah. the big argument and the, and the big thing so for instance you know what's going to happen with agriculture in this region where we've got huge parts of you know Durham and Northumberland which are rural areas with hill farms and hill farmers who aren't landowners uh, who export lots of their uh, their sheep or their lamb to Europe uh, and beef etc to Europe what's going to happen to those people uh, and you know what we don't really know is the answer at the moment. We don't we don't really know, uh, but that's kind of part of the story. The uncertainty is, in a sense, part of the story. So really, have we just been spending two years reporting uncertainty? Uh, well, a, in a nutshell, in in, in a sense, in, uh, in some ways, I suppose yes. I mean, we can't because we can't say well here is the conclusion. I and mean, even when you know if the withdrawal act is pa- passed, you know, if some kind of miracle is passed, then we're still going to have this this. Uh, when what happens next? What yes. what what do we do with Europe next? And we'll have the whole you know political protocol etc. to to discuss as well, and what trade agreement we have with them. So the story doesn't end. There'll still be uncertainty yes. after that. And I think sometimes that's the bit that gets forgotten as well as that. Even if we have the withdrawal agreement, we've still got this huge next stage, and everybody's going to breathe this huge sigh of relief. But actually, we've got the next huge bit of the story to go when it really will, I think, begin to affect people on the ground. Yes. Darren. You begun your research into into this even before the referendum, didn't you? Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, and so tell us a little bit about the work you did, particularly around um, the messaging of, of Nigel Farage yeah. before the referendum. And then, have you seen what, what have you seen post referendum in terms of the kind of storytelling and messaging 
the, uh, that, we've, that we've been reading about. So Fergus just, just touched on a really important point there about the, the conclusion of a story and the for me, that's about the importance of narrative and, that, and how narratives come to a, a close and deliver something that we seek through process of storytelling, whatever story it is that we're, we're, we're telling or listening to or reading or whatever. So when I first started looking at Farage, I was interested in... It was at that time where he was starting to sort of say, well, we are now the third party of the UK and we're gaining momentum, UKIP is what people want and it was and I was interested in the story that he was telling because I felt that he was gateway well, he was gaining significant momentum in his case to get a referendum. So at this stage it was it was in that process of campaigning just to get Cameron to give us that referendum. Um, and I was interested in the story that he was telling about um, about the UK and the EU and how it reflected certain archetypal conventions of storytelling something called the monomyth, which is basically the hero's journey. You're very familiar with the hero's journey, whether you've heard of it or not. It's most, nearly every film that you've ever watched. And this idea of a call, for, call to adventure and going off... It's a powerful story because it works so well for Farage. Going off overseas to the other world, to the powerful other, the, the, the oppressive enemy who's restricting our interests as a nation to take back our sovereignty, our control, our democracy, and to bring it home, and to come home to the people with something. And that story, that narrative is very clear in that, if you look at the rhetoric and the stories around Farage, in the story that he and his supporters tell him at least, um, that, that, those archetypal qualities were distinct. And I was arguing that this was a narrative vehicle for ideology through the story. Without going on too much, where we are now, is the incompletion of that story. So it would be interesting to see what happens, because even if we had a deal, say, say Theresa May said, right, you're going to vote on my deal for the 24th time, and, it's good, and it goes through, and everyone says, okay, it goes through. For many people, the story's not complete, because it's no deal Brexit that is true, true Brexit, true sovereignty, and that voice will continue for many, many, many years. <coughs> that battle, so to speak, will continue off the back of that narrative. And that, for... for this uncertainty that we're stuck in is about the incompletion narrative. This anger, I've argued in my research, is, is because of the importance of narrative. People need closure to that story. In some cases, where it's not even what they want. But for me, it's our heroes come home with something, and now there is another elite stopping us from having what we want. And it's about the closure to that narrative. So for me, it's fascinating times, but that doesn't make it less concerning. So, are there competing narratives to that, or is that is that the dominant <coughs> narrative? But are, are there others that, that there, there's 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 many many narratives, but I do think that, and the way that I've tried to, especially in teaching as well, because I don't want to to alienate people who might be sort of pro Brexit for what they feel are very genuine reasons. And when I've talked to students about this, we've kind of said, look, regardless of where you stand on Brexit, if we look at this narrative. We can see it's there. If we look at how people respond to it, whether they're supporters of Farage or critics of Farage, they're often pointing to that narrative. They're often even critics of Farage and, and Brexit will often come in with, "Who are you to say that you're a man of the people? You, you're a son of a banker and you went to private school. Who are you? Who are you to pretend to be the man of the people who's going off to win back democracy for us?" And even the critics of in their narrative, they're responding to that archetypal 
um, convention because it's so prominent and so familiar to the way we tell stories. It's interesting. I think that the, that narrative, a similar narrative, has operated, similar to what I was saying before, following on from what I was saying before, on a micro level with Theresa May yes. and, and the lobby. So I, I would argue that one of the reasons why, uh, you know, to some extent there has been journalism which has perhaps misled the public in terms of, well, intentionally, but it has misled the public in terms of the viability of May's deal and May's deal getting through, is that there has been an element of, um, you know, it's quite a good story that Theresa May, against all the odds, you know, she, she shot herself in the foot with the election, she still went to Europe, she came back with a deal that no one thought that she would be able to get through. And then at the last moment, you know, these... Labour MPs who hate their leader more and were convinced by you know Theresa May's self-sacrificing, dutiful performance as Prime Minister, you know they did that. Uh, that has very much been a narrative which has operated in the lobby in Westminster for weeks and weeks and weeks against all evidence to the contrary. And time and again, I and a couple of other my colleagues have said, well, well you know she's going to lose by two hundred. You know, we literally phone them all up, and this is before the first meeting. Oh, we phone them all up, come out by two hundred. No, 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 no. You'll see. You'll see last minute they'll buckle. And of course they haven't, and they didn't once, and they didn't twice, and they didn't thrice. And still, I still hear certain colleagues, you know, still take to the radio and the airways and say, and, and write to and say, next time, next time. And it's partly because Downing Street is saying that, and it's partly because maybe they believe it, I don't know, but, but I think part of it is actually that, is actually the operation of narrative at microscope, because Theresa May also has a strong narrative amongst the public as well, to be fair. I mean, I'm always very struck that whenever I go out into the country talk, she does have Often people do either express sympathy or they say, you know, well, you know, she's trying her best, she's trying her best. And I don't always necessarily believe, in fact, in the sort of necessarily or all the sort of dutiful thing, but she, because in a way she's a politician who doesn't exude ego, she's been quite good at harnessing that in such a way as to, as to tell quite a powerful story about herself, but that hasn't translated into her parliamentary performance in any way. Well, I think she said, I'm on your side. That was just didn't, it didn't work. It didn't have the effect that she wanted it to have, and she came out in that speech, I'm on your. I'm on your side and it seemed to that seemed to be a bit of a turning point where people who were sympathetic kind of said I'm, I'm, not, I'm no longer sympathetic she's just out of foot I think the Remain it's interesting isn't it that the second referendum idea is, is sort of tapping into some of that that this is we're going to convince everybody that they made an enormous mistake and we're going to kind of ride to the rescue and this, this will come good in the end yeah. because we will have another referendum and that will change it all around and yeah, yeah. breathe a huge sigh of relief and, and go back to how we kind of were. And, you know, an awful lot of that, uh, whether or not that happens, but is, is based on some wishful thinking as well and tapping into a kind of a story about, you know, how this ends. Uh, that people, you know, it's what people want, if, if you want to believe in that, if that's a thing you want, that's what people kind of attach themselves to and believe that's, that's where it's going to end up. So there's a kind of, on all sides, there's kind of wishful thinking about where this, where this might go. Populists are always dropping their own narrative now. The populists, uh, you know, in, the, in one sense, who are relying on this idea of the people are now fighting against mm -hmm. it in another way, and it's just let the elite pass it through in the way they need it, so it's interesting. But as journalists, Lisa, are, are we conscious of when we are writing a particular narrative? You know, when we're kind of, or is it a trap that we try to avoid falling into? And are we really just trying to tell the facts as they are, you know, uh, without weaving it into some kind of wider narrative? I mean, I, I can, I know, I can see what you say and hear everything you say, but when I'm approaching a story, you're not approaching it from that narrative at all. You just no, go, this no. is a story. Yeah, no, will it work? Will, will it 
resonate with readers. Um, and sometimes there are stories that you know are important to do, that you have to do, that won't resonate with readers or resonate with some of your core readers, like on EU Citizens, we might cover minute, not minute detail, but we might cover, we do cover way more detail because we've decided that's our, one of our core stories within this is the rights of EU citizens. Um, and I was just thinking when you were saying that, what's the Remain narrative? Is it the opposite of that? Is that, as you say, we'll, we'll, we will teach everybody else that they were wrong and we were right. I don't know if it is. I think generally, and in London, most of London is Remain. Um, I think there's a sense of despair and well, also mixed with inertia with re with remainers. Um, and I also think the Leave and the ERG, one of the reasons I was at another conference by the UK and Changing Europe, which is a think tank of lots of academic um, institutions around the country, uh, who've been doing some very good work. Um, and one of the authors there, um, somebody's written about, um, about the Tories, was saying, you know, without 24 7 media and social media, the likes of Marc Francois, the, who you've never heard of before in your life, or Andrew Bridgen, all these backbencher and pieces, one that I saw in the central lobby the other day, I'd never heard of her. Um, you know, they get airtime that they wouldn't necessarily have had. And I mean, Lewis, you must find that, you know, when you're, well, guys, I mean, I, I'm just so addicted to the story. I'm not criticizing BBC or Sky, whoever they have on. But you do get people who don't have a voice, who wouldn't have had a voice five years ago because, you know, because there's, there's a need to fill the airways. Yes. Um, and but I also that, in a way, is creating a bias. Yes. Well, because there's also a need to feel that we're, we're getting balance as well. Uh, so I just wanted to... That's another issue again, isn't it? Yeah, well, I wanted to come on to that, yeah. you know, and the whole false equivalence thing. I mean, what... Um, do we feel that uh, when we're constructing stories and deciding on sources and deciding how to fill out you know, the, the, the rest of the story that we're sometimes reaching out to people that normally we wouldn't uh, be, 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 just be talking to? I mean, what, what do you think, Lewis? Are you, how, do, how do you, and I don't know what guidance you're given at Sky in terms of balancing your, your, your stories? Because uh, obviously there maybe aren't as many and the other thing to point out, of course, is that newspapers aren't um, regulated. No. But broadcasters are, and they have to yes. be impartial, whereas we don't. Um, I think it's... Uh, I think the Sky has taken a view, which is one that I fully support, uh, what was involved in the discussion about, which is that, um, you know, often we get the criticism, uh, you know, uh, well, why aren't you... Why aren't you talking about the problems of Remain, or why aren't you talking about the problems of the EU? And to which our reply is very simple, which is that Remain didn't win. Uh, leave one. And leaving is what we're doing, or at least what we're supposed to be doing. So, you know, you know, I have always treated it, I think Sky's chosen to treat it, that, you know, um, you know, we're subjecting leave to exactly the same scrutiny that we would any other government policy, because that is ultimately now what it is. It's not just a referendum result, it is central government policy and therefore you know people say well you've got six pieces on you know and all these pieces on the website about all the problems about leaving so yeah because it's government policy you know that, that's in exactly the same way that we would with anything else um, I think Sky perhaps has a bit more freedom to do that than the BBC frankly I think I used to work at the BBC I, I, I feel uh, slightly more I'm probably less scrutinised than I would, not, would if I were you know, for the, the BBC perhaps, uh, and so I feel slightly more flexibility in order to be able to slightly call the spade a spade, I think, than I think perhaps some colleagues at the BBC feel. 
Um, I think for other sustainable reasons because they just get attacked constantly. Um, and we don't have the license fee. We're, you know, we're a commercial organisation, so although we are regulated, we don't have the sort of license fee um, issue to consider um, either. Um, but I, I, to be honest with you, I don't really overthink it, especially. I think to me it's quite clear. I think it's government policy. Um, I think that uh, you know it should therefore be scrutinised. It's very important government policy, and it should be scrutinised uh, accordingly. Um, I think Lisa's right in terms of kind of the creation of some of these characters, people like Marc Francois, you know, they can suddenly go from absolute obscurity to not quite household names, but certainly political household, not a million miles off, with very short order. I think one of the reasons for that, frankly, on the Brexit debate, which is, you know, Brexiters have a point when they say that uh, Parliament is dominated by Remain MPs, or at least MPs who voted Remain, and probably Honestly, most of these, I mean, obviously, you know, we only ever really hear from 100 to 150 MPs because Parliament <coughs> is mostly constituted of quiet Conservative or Labour backbenchers who frankly just want this to go away <laughs> and to go away as quickly as possible. And then on either side, on the sort of extreme <coughs> edges, you have, you know, very ardent Remainers, uh, whom there are more, and then actually, to be honest, a smaller cohort of hard Brexiters. Given that does represent a significant proportion of opinion in the country, there is a, therefore a, just a smaller pool of people from which to choose in order to represent that point of view. And therefore people like Marc Francois you know, are called upon regularly, not least because they are very willing to talk and talk publicly a lot, uh, and also because they do represent that point of view, which is a relatively, still a relative minority one in Parliament. But they're also very well organised, aren't they? And they're they? very well organised, yeah. They have, um, this is just from a colleague of mine, um, we did a podcast on this, they have daily lines to take, don't they? Just in the same way as you ring a government office. Oh yeah, they produce yeah. their lines, they talk oh, yeah. to all the journalists, they they have a representative, so it might yeah. be Steve Baker one day, yeah. so Mark Francois another day. Yeah. So they operate like a party within a party, don't I'm they? I'm not sure they should right. mark that but, but yeah, but they definitely have people. <laughs> to say the um, stale message would be an understatement. <laughs> yeah, but you know, for example, last night, you know, after the back of prime minister's speech, you know, word went round that uh, the LG were having a prop two meeting, committee room fifteen, and so you know, I and a few other sort of trades along there, they're all obviously in there talking and getting angry about it. Jacob Rees-Mogg comes out, gives a little impromptu press conference, all on the record, saying exactly what the group thinks, and so their line is out there, bam, bam, bam. So, you know, they are, um, they are as, as Lisa Robson right, right say, they are, they are organised and they are always available. I mean, people sometimes make this criticism about you, of media organisations about having UKIP on all the time in the years leading up to the referendum. I would, you know, always say to that, that, um, you know, UKIP similarly had a very quite effective media organisation. Often when the Conservative Party and the Labour Party didn't want to put anyone forward, they always had someone to be put forward. And therefore, the you know, mainstream, and that can still be the case now, and so the mainstream of political parties sometimes have a responsibility, if they don't want some of these more extreme voices to represent them, to put people forward and have something interesting to say. I think it's quite easy for people to keep pointing the finger back at the same media platforms all the time, like yeah. the likes of BBC, Sky, The Guardian, and so on. But when you actually look at the the likes of UKIP early on, and how often Nigel Farage was on, say, Question Time, um, when you look at it like that, and, and this message he had of uh, the, the, the elite's friends in the media, this idea that the politicians have all got their friends in the media, and it's me on my own sort of thing. I think these stories have gained ground amongst the public who also get their voice on social media so much more than mm -hmm. in the past. So it, 
it's easy to point the finger at the typical media platforms, but they're not necessarily that centrally in control of the public discourse, which now grows and grows in ways it never has before on social media, and it can react to what politicians are saying, regardless of the stories the journalists are telling. I also think, just to go back to Lisa's valid point a minute ago, when we talk about stuff like narrative and archetypes, so I make a point this to students as well. This isn't about uh, accusing journalists of sitting down and conspiratorially and making stories or deliberately drawing on archetypes. It, these are things that resonate with us because they're just in the way that we tell stories without thinking about it, and they, they appear through popular stories that we all connect with. So I certainly don't it's think... It's also influenced at that point, which is a Farage's messaging. Yes. Um, and the words they use and totally. the buttons they press. and the, the, you know They're very, very successful. I think more so... His stories gain that momentum more so through his rhetoric, regardless of the <coughs> stories that are told about him. I still think that's, that story he told came, came through and resonated with people, regardless of how the media platforms always covered him. Because even when he got a bad story written about him, perfect, their friends in the media want to undermine me. So it just fed and fed, whatever, you, the media, whatever media said, it fed it. I mean, Fergus, at the BBC, does it sometimes feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't? If you don't go to somebody for a comment, well, the mainstream media and the BBC just won't talk to us. And then if you do put them in, then it's, well, why, are the, why are you guys giving these guys air time? Does it sometimes feel that you, you're caught between those two? In a word, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, rightly, we're under intense scrutiny and more scrutiny than probably under than we've been in for any other story in, in the past and you know where people pay the license fee they're entitled everybody is entitled to have their view about the BBC because everybody pays the license yeah. fee so you know not everybody subscribes to Sky not everybody buys the Guardian you know whatever so everybody pays the license fee in theory so everybody's entitled to their opinion about our coverage and uh, you know for instance we had somebody very angry fun up the radio after we played a clip of uh, somebody the other day and said why on earth do you have that woman on she shouldn't be allowed on the radio she should never be allowed to speak you know but obviously this MP represents you know, the views of an awful lot of people, not just in her constituency, but in the wider, uh, you know, the, the wider the country, you know, because that she's representing, she's representing the, you know, the kind of leave opinion yeah. in the piece. So it's, sometimes it feels impossible if whoever you, you put on, you're going to, you know, you, people are going to disagree with. I mean, I think the thing about, you know, different backbenchers and shades, there is, the interesting thing about the Brexit story is, once upon a time, it was the story was, and talking about you know going back to reporting journalism a while ago, 2001 or whatever it was, it was, you know, you went to the Labour Party, the Labour Party had a, a line, especially the Labour Party then, and, and there were nuances and, and backbench MPs who might be rebellious, and the, and the Conservative Party and other parties had a line on whatever it was, but there are almost as many you know views uh, in in the Labour Party and in the Conservative Party about Brexit as there are MPs. So there are lots and lots and lots of different views. Uh, so you you know if you go to one Labour MP, you're not getting Labour's view necessarily, are you? You're getting a view of a particular faction, perhaps of uh, of the Labour MP who might want another referendum. But there are other Labour MPs, of course, who you know absolutely do not want another referendum. And you, we're the same with the Conservative Party. So you can you know, can have you can almost represent shades of opinion about Brexit, uh, and there might be some different people in the same party who are. You know, arguing or poles apart, so it's sort of interesting as a story, because it's no longer quite so. It's not defined along party lines in the way that many other stories uh, used to be. Uh, so we do end up sometimes with these rather, you know, these MPs that you've never heard of, but they represent a kind of strand of opinion within a within a within an opinion within a party, 
uh, and and do, in many cases you know, they may not represent the views of, of, of the majority of Parliament, but they might represent the views of, of, views of, a, of a very large number of people. Yeah. And in a hundred parliament, parliament, that really matters. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Really ma you know, they all matter. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, once upon a time, Fro Mark Foswell might not matter, but he really matters mm. because he speaks and, for a good cause. And Theresa May losing her majority means that yes, well, exactly that that a few MPs, and, and we've seen this, can make a tremendous difference and have a tremendous influence on, on the government's policy. Uh, or the government's failure to implement its policy in, the, in this case. I can just yeah. add to that. The BBC is in a strange place as well. So I can think of certain figures like, um, like Laura Kunzberg, who I, the, my lefty buddies will be continuously saying, this is a prime example of how conservative the BBC's become. They're too controlled conservatives. And then my Brexit friends will be going, Laura Kunzberg is a perfect example of, of this... Um, lefty BBC or anti-Brexit and da, da 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 and they really are. The same reports <coughs> can be viewed by both sides as equally biased against the other. It's very, I've never quite seen it. I think it's really interesting, there's a, a guy called Rob Burley who's mm. the editor of political programmes, live political programmes, Sir Andrew Marr and uh, in Westminster Hour, all, all of the live political programmes and if you look at his Twitter feed it's really interesting because he will literally get people uh, tweeting and saying, you have not spoken about the march on Sunday, right. uh, or you know, pretty much that fact, and he'll say, "Well, actually, we've just had talked about it for ten minutes," and then somebody else will say, "You've talked too much about the march." On Sunday. And so, <laughs> yes. so you know, and, and, and his Twitter feed is full of, of that kind of discussion about people looking at it and watching the same program and taking very different things from. Yeah, the, yeah, from I think it does. I think all of that. I mean, I think Rob, um, you know, um, his was right. His line, which I think is right, which is, you know, you need to recognise that sometimes people you disagree with will actually be on television. And I suspect that that is the sort of, that is the weird rubric that we pass now. So I, you know, interestingly we were talking about Iraq before, I remember that, and you know, um, it was the case in the past, it seemed to me, that people might well have disagreed with someone, mm. but they were at least willing to accept the legitimacy that they appeared on television, and that they said <coughs> something they disagreed with. Now we've gone into this weird sort of television prurience where, and, and, and sort of sensible censorship, which is that, you know, broadcasters shouldn't even allow these people airtime, you know, for, for no other reason than they disagree with them, yeah, you know, yeah. that, and, and that is a, and that is very hard to deal with, because what are you supposed to say to that, you know, because ultimately they have to be. I mean, uh, just to come back to, Darren mentioned Laura Kunzberg, uh, you know, is it right that we're now in a, in a place where someone like Laura has to have a bodyguard when she goes to party conferences and... I mean, and, and have, I, know, I know we're all, you know, grown-ups and we've got thick skins, but do, do you sense, just even, you know, um, through your Twitter feeds, did you sense that something has changed and are, do you sometimes a little bit nervous about turning on your computer in the morning, picking up your smartphone and seeing what people have responded to in terms of your reporting? I mean, Lisa, what, what do you... Me, not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not in, I'm not on TV. My face isn't known. Nothing. I was actually. Can I make another point? Yeah, please. Different. I've just been drawing up a list. This is all relevant. <laughs> Male, pale, and stale. This is almost like a manual, right? Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I, what I was just going to say was that this Brexit story, or just current journalism, what is really, really striking if you're a woman is how women have prospered. So we've got Laura Kunzberg, political editor. She's the first political female political editor ever, I think, for BBC. Yeah. Isn't that right? 
we've got um, Fiona Bruce, who's um, taken over from another Mayo Payne and Stay Out Mom and Question Time. We've got Emily Maitlis, who's become the lead um, on Newsnight, which is amazing. We've got Sophie Rayworth. And there was one night during the week, every single one of the main people on the BBC was women. I think it was Sophie Rayworth interviewing Laura Kunzberg, then to Katia Adler, maybe even Charlotte Hussein or somewhere else. I, for, for a woman, and I see there are women here who are going into journalism, that's really, really encouraging, and um, I think that's another thing that has changed. But on, this, on the security side, I can see it's, it's awful that Laura Kunzberg um, has, has had, did have to have a security um, detail at the Labour Party conference, and she, she is really, really good. I'm so pleased to read on, in the Times, she did a cover story in the magazine, um, promoting her documentary. I was really horrified when I saw her on the front of the Times. But Laura, you have kept, you know, having come from a background covering media, it's really, really important. If you want to keep your, your private life private, it's never to mention your private life, never to talk about your family. She hasn't, and we don't know as public anything really much about her except that she's there on the screen and she's a political editor and she's got blonde hair and that's what she looks like. Um, and uh, she was at pains to keep all of that private quite a lengthy interview in the Times and I thought that was that was really good. Um, it's the only way to protect yourself. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting as well, you, I mean you talk about you know the, the, the women on television but I think uh, I think female reporters get more stick and female MPs yeah. get more stick. There's yeah. undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly the case. Not Fiona Bruce is getting now yeah. question time. Uh, and the stick she's getting. It's the very first week actually didn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, straight away. Does Kay Burley get a lot of stick? <laughs> yes. Well, she does generally, doesn't she? I mean, yeah, she gets. He's Beth Rigby, for instance. Kay and Beth, I mean, I, I noticed that. I mean, I've got some in our political team at Westminster, there's uh, well, three women or four men, and it's just very, it's very, very, very noticeable that um, the, the, the Kay, uh, Beth Rigby, Tamara Cohen, political correspondent, and uh, Sophie Ridge does our Sunday programme, they yeah. get noticeably. And Kate McCann, who's just joined us from the Telegraph, but um, they get noticeably, noticeably more uh, than any of us. And yeah, it's. But I mean, they they all. I mean, I think they just take the attitude that uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's unfortunately just part of the job, and it's part of the job to some extent anyway. And like these, are, I'm very thick-skinned about it. I don't really, I don't really care. But um, as long as I feel that you can justify, actually, you know, the times. I mean, sometimes you can get criticism which is justified. You know, sometimes you know, you, and yeah. that's perfectly legitimate. You know, I, I think sometimes there is a sort of slight tendency, and sometimes journalists kind of um, all sort of gang up together and express so much solidarity, say so almost that we're sort of beyond criticism. I don't think, I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people say something and you say, actually, you know what? Yeah, I think that's fair. And enough, you make mistakes, and as long as you make mistakes, say, yeah, I made mistakes. Yeah, we made a mistake, or you know what? Yeah. The way I phrased that was wrong, or you know, yeah. and, and, and probably we're making more mistakes now because we're all so bloody knackered. We're making more mistakes now than we probably normally would, and that's fair enough. But certainly, I mean, some of it is not criticism; it's just abuse. It's abuse, and it's just and and so often. I mean, literally, I saw someone on just on the way up here. Someone called me a traitor, and then you notice, and that you know, and then you notice. I sort of clicked on his profile, and you sort of notice he's living in New South Wales, and you know. So I mean, it's just it's some some of it is just hilarious. But then and then sometimes as well, you know what? Just this morning, I got a couple of messages from people just DM me saying, actually. Know, really enjoying your coverage, you know, thanks very much. And that's also nice. So, you know, you've got to take the rough Can I just go back to something Lewis said at the start, where you very briefly just said, I'm not saying we should feel sorry for MPs, but actually I think, as unpopular as this might sound, I think we need to start feeling more sorry for more people who don't typically get sympathy. Whether they, I mean, I already feel much more sorry for, for journalists than I, than I used to, or for the, for the media <laughs> than I used to. 
I definitely feel sorry for if we try to look beyond it's very easy to reduce things to just a body of people like the politicians but when you think how many individual genuine decent human beings are caught up in a really crappy professional position <coughs> like we were describing earlier on I actually think we do start needing to need to start feeling a little bit more sorry for each other again whether it's among the public or towards the media or towards politicians as individual human beings I don't think we can fix political discourse unless we do that because well, when you've got, when you've got Alice, Boris Johnson using the not, language he uses I'm not saying for sorry for Boris Johnson no, no, but, but, he, but he's <laughs> yeah. a public figure he should be a role model but Anna Selbury, look at the way Anna, if I pronounce her name right look at what happened to Anna Selbury just trying to walk five minutes across from one office to the other physically intimidated by right-wing thugs in her face, like wearing yellow jackets. I remember that day that happened, and I I thought, will I tweet something like that? And I thought, no, I don't want to give... It was in December, and I don't want to give oxygen of publicity to that, you know, 'er ne'er-do-well who called her a Nazi. Um, And that that, that, I was totally surprised then, it wasn't until (coughs) January, that that came up, that somebody had been... Somebody brought it to the attention of the police, and it was investigated. It was just like... It, was, it, it became routine, didn't it? Well, you know, as well, I mean, I think that... Um, I, I absolutely... I mean, our, our discourse has become sort of coarser. Uh, I think you're uh, absolutely right, Dan, that, that, you know, generally we need to be a little bit more forgiving of each other, that our discourse would benefit from that a lot. But, you know, I mean, we also shouldn't make the mistake, and as I say, I, you know, I forget less than, than, than some people, particularly for women journalists um, and women MPs. Um, we shouldn't necessarily always make the mistake as well that, you know... A few, some real idiots, of whom there are yeah. too many, you know, uh, really characterise everything. So, you know, we've heard a lot about the crowds that assemble in Abingdon Green and in College Green um, in Westminster. You know, I've, I've had, uh, you know, broadcast a lot from there over the last uh, couple of months. And yeah, there are some real idiots and they shout out horrific things. And they did that particularly at the start. But what I've really noticed over the last couple of months is actually a lot of those have got bored and dissipated. <laughs> and they've been replaced by, you know, what you would describe as, you know, classic... British political eccentrics, right? You know, you've got half the half the kind of um, you know absolute pro Remain. They turn up and they're singing, you know, sea shanties uh, with you know the lyrics adapted to you know uh, the idea of us all staying in the European Union and Theresa May and all this. And then you've got half the sort of leavers. And sometimes they get a little bit uh, boisterous. But then, and I don't know, frankly, you know, why they haven't got jobs because they're there every single day. Uh, and they, start, but you know, I, part of me sort of thinks, well, that is kind of our democracy, right? It's the same sort of people who stand for the Monster Raving Looney Party, and they, they do those sort of things. So it's not all bad. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC North East and Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>